Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, David, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Uh, Yeah, brief bio. Um, I'm an American living in the UK. Uh, I've been here for about a decade now. Um, I've had a slightly weird journey. I started uh, my career as a high school dropout in finance for four years then went uh, started a business in Europe in 2006 that I sold in 2008. Uh, made enough money to think about giving most of it away, and um, you know got pretty frustrated by the state of play in the charity sector, and decided I probably needed to learn more. And you know at 25 went to university for the first time, and um, turns out I like learning as an adult, and ended up coming to the UK a decade ago to work on a PhD which I dropped out of to start Founders Pledge. Um, and that's what I do now. And I've been doing that for the last uh, eight or so years, seven and a half years. Um, and big ideas. Um, I'm really interested in how we can coordinate better to solve really tough problems. I mean, uh, if you look at the news these days, um, all, all I tend to see is just doom and gloom and how um, increasingly precarious the balance we have in, in on this planet is. And I, I don't just mean about climate, but I mean in lots of respects. Um, and at, on the same token, you you have like, we've never been better off as a, as a people, as a species before. We've never had, uh, you know, better health, more happiness, like all of the big indicators are getting better in lots of respects, but yet, yet there's still like this precariousness. And so I think that there's a really interesting space for really smart people to coordinate better as they think about how to apply resources for tough problems. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, it's sort of what I do at Founders Pledge and what we do at Founders Pledge. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in, in how, uh, how we leverage communities of exceptional people to do good stuff. That's great. That's great. You, you know, you remind me of, of a question there I've had for a while, which is, it seems like humanity has in some sense gotten worse at coordinating around big problems. Uh, I, I think in context of Apollo and Manhattan, the Manhattan Project, where we were able to build these like incredibly technically difficult things, we weren't even sure they were quite possible in very short right. periods of time. Um, but it seems like it, it's almost impossible to imagine the Department of Energy, which it was actually the Manhattan Project originally, doing that again, yep. like the same thing. It sounds like it, it just seems like it just wouldn't work. Um, what do you think has gone wrong there? And, and how do you think about fixing that kind of problem? It's a really good question and, and actually one that we've been thinking about along with a bunch of other funders in the space um, that, are try- that are trying to um, harken back to these um, times gone past where humanity could seem sort of seemingly accomplish these incredible feats in small periods of time. And I think it's a question of like willpower and, you know, the, the Manhattan project and, and the Apollo missions were like a sort of a great power balancing act, right? Where you had the, the entire might and will of the U S government and a relatively in line, um, 
political class just deciding to throw their weight behind this idea so that America could best the Soviets, right? And uh, in, in the Apollo sense and defeat um, Nazism in the, you know, um, in the Manhattan Project sense. So like, we, it's good that we don't have threats like that anymore or like or, or the type of sort of monolithic thinking in that respect that enables a country like the US or um, or Europe to go about like sometimes scary types of things like the Manhattan Project was scary um, but but it also has meant that we've really not made big advances in areas that seemingly would unlock a huge amount of good for the world um, and uh, and one of the funders that we've been impressed by recently who's been thinking about this is, is Schmidt Futures, which is Eric Schmidt's family office that has a big focus on impact. And we've been exploring with them um, uh, these so-called foundational um, research offices, FROs. Uh, I don't, actually, that's not... The, uh, FROs, I don't think O, I'm getting O right. Foundational research organizations, sorry, um, that are basically... Uh, looking into setting up Manhattan style, Manhattan project style projects for various issues. Um, and so I think it's a question of like a meaningful amount of money and good coordination between aligned actors deciding to say, we're just going to sort of throw caution to the wind and fund stuff that we think is going to be transformational for society. That's great. I, I'm, I'm curious, is, is there... Is there another element that matters like in like so when we think about these big mega projects, you mentioned something interesting, right? The great power conflict element to it seems to me to be really important. So this idea like you and I, David, if we were Manhattan Project scientists and General Groves comes to us and he's like, you know, you need to work really hard because if you don't work really hard, you know, like we're going to lose this war and it's going to be terrible. And, and like, you know, the Nazis are going to come over and they're going to take over this country. And that was the story at the times. They're going to invade, you know, North America and eventually yeah. come down, you know, wherever you were. Um, do you think it, it, it's um, and we've had Adam Marblestone on the show as well. So this is a this is a great, great connection um, from the FRO angle. Is it difficult? You know, if you spin up an FRO for, let's say, fertility research, um, mm-hmm. if you don't have this kind of, you know, human adversary you're worried about that forces you to work kind of doesn't force you, but it encourages you to work 80 hours a week on this project. Um, you know, do people just not work as hard? Is, is there a way to inspire people to work really hard on these these um, problems that are incredibly important, maybe as important as, you know, the problems the Manhattan Project was solving um, and Apollo were solving, but uh, don't have this like kind of human enemy element that to my, in my mind sounds like and seems really important to encourage people to scares people into working really hard, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, the, the example that I thought of and then laughed about because, you know, it's going to be, I guess, slightly controversial is like, we've seen people be motivated to work 80 hour weeks and through weekends on big projects. They tend to be led by Elon Musk, right? right. So you think about SpaceX and Tesla and just how um, these two industries have been fundamentally disrupted by this guy who basically inspires action without the, that threat of like, right. you know, extinction, Armageddon. right? Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, but through, I'm not sure what. Um, so I, I guess more Elon might be the answer in some respects and less in, in lots of others. Um, I'm not really sure. That's the truth. Um, so may, may, and, and I guess maybe it is a bit of like, a, if we don't do this soon, 
um, we're, we're like heading into a brick wall, except the brick wall is not brick. Uh, it's like a big, you know, huge metal wall that's, you know, several right. meters thick and it's very hot and we're not going to survive a crash with it. Exactly. Um, and we're sort of heading in that direction in a lot of respects. I just don't think everyone has realized it or really internalized it yet to the extent that would compel people to work those 80, 100 hour weeks right. um, in the way that might be necessary to like develop right. foundational new technologies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I have a question. I'm going to jump around a little bit on the outline. I'm sorry, sure. but, it, but it is aligned here. Um, how concerned are you about AI safety, AIX risk? Um, it, it does seem to me like one of the big problems in the AI safety space is, is a lack of coordination. There is no like mm-hmm. Manhattan Project for AI safety research. Um, and perhaps if we could uh, coordinate everyone better in some sense, it, I, I feel like our odds are better. And it's not like where uh, Yudkowsky is kind of like, you know, writing these, these blog posts where he's kind of given up and says, you know, that it, it, at least in my mind, that, that's how I read it, that, that we don't really have a chance. I think we should try really hard to make sure AI safety goes right and AI alignment um, goes well. And it seems like a, a coordination problem at some level. It's definitely a coordination problem. And, um, and I am, you know, I don't, Maybe maybe the the theme of you know this this conversation so far is I'm not sure, but right. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not feeling super optimistic if <laughs> from from my perspective, and I'm certainly not an expert in AI safety in, in the way that um, Eliezer is or yeah. a, any of any of the other much smarter people thinking about this. Um, what I do understand is that the people focused on AI safety research are dwarfed by the people focused on developing AI as quickly as possible. Um, And the difference in budget, scale, and ambition is hard to fathom between the ones that want to develop AI quickly, uh, regardless of safety concerns, and those who want to do it uh, safely. Uh, It's just, it's two different leagues. Yeah. Um, And when when you think about Let's just constrain it to the West for you know, very, very briefly, and uh, and then we'll sort of ex- expand that, um, that 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 sphere that we talk about. Like even the West, where you have a, a relatively aligned political institution group and a relatively aligned economic set of incentives, um, it still is just seemingly intractable to get people to talk to each other. And this is you know. And, and we're talking about developing commercial uses for, you know, for uh, AI. Uh, it just, I, I don't see how we how we can coordinate that better, absent some, you know, n- some new piece of information, some extant something happening that really rallies people together. I'm just, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, we can throw money at it. We can throw AI safety researchers at it. You know, we do with we we do we'd be much better with like five more Eliezer's. Uh, Eliezer's. Um, but like, that's not going to happen. Right. If you expand the sphere to think about China, um, then it becomes a fundamentally different question because it's not about um, AI for commercial re- use. It's AI for dominion. Right. Um, and, um, I, you know, I'm mentioning Eric Schmidt again, but I, um, you know, his, his, his views on this have, uh, have, in, you know, been pretty, um, eye-opening, mind-expanding. Just his view on China is um, they are developing AI at a breakneck pace because who develops it first wins. 
everything, right? And you know, call that um, what you will, but they are throwing a huge amount of uh, brain power at it, a huge amount of money, um, with no real, as I understand it, question of safety, and that that's very scary to me. Well, is it a question then? Uh, you know, if you're the American president, if you're Joe Biden, do you just you know say Gudkowski like? Please stop, you know, please, please stop. But we want this first. If it's going to be primarily defensive, you know, how do you, you know, is the U.S. government in this kind of public choice dilemma, like kind of encouraged to just like, you know, not fund any AI safety research? We need to be the first ones to get it, because if the first one gets it wins, then, you know, we're really in trouble. You know, and if AI safety, if everyone in the field thinks it's really not possible to line these things, it's just like, well, we're going to let, let the chips play out. That's not a very, you know, rosy picture. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm not sure. I think. Um, I think it's maybe a, a potentially a false dichotomy. Like the chi- the Chinese view is like who those who get it first win, and yeah. you know, and the, sort of the more EA uh, view would be um, those who get it first, everyone loses, right? Like right. it's exactly. it's not it's not like a winners t- winners <laughs> take all. It's a everyone loses except except for. Yeah, the AI, right, right, right. Um, so I think it it would be probably not smart to um, stop AI safety research. Right, I think. exactly. If anything, no. we should, it, you know, the goal of the goal of that research should be, uh, I would expect, better communication between the the various labs working on this. And I mean, if you look at Mediculus, the forecast for um, sort of AI timelines has very gone close. down like <laughs> very significantly recently. And, um, you know, I am certainly um, not an expert. Like, again, not an expert. If I could wear the hat, yeah. it, it would say not an expert on it. But like lots of people are and, um, and I trust um, those people. And it seems to me that we're fast approaching either that brick slash metal wall or a right. very large cliff of some variety definitely and, and do you do you guys uh support any ai safety ai alignment researchers at founders pledge oh yeah definitely i mean um all, all of the usual suspects uh we are big believers in um in the need to put lots of philanthropic dollars to work to to, to focus on developing safe ai or um slowing down the development of AI, um, uh, al- aligning incentives in, um, in, in these types of systems, as well as all of the sort of biosecurity um, and, and broad X risk uh, areas. I mean, we've also done research on um, lethal autonomous weaponized systems. We've just put out, um, we've done research on, uh, that we published at the end of last year on preventing great power war, which we also consider to be uh, part of this long-termist um, worldview, uh, bucket of funding opportunities, um, and uh, and the representation of future generations in democratic institutions today. That's cool. I, I, how do you think about you know ranking these interventions, evaluating new calls areas? Uh, you, do you guys have a framework you use at Founders Pledge to try and like figure out like what's the best, highest leverage things to fund? Yeah, uh, it's it's. A relatively complicated question, um, actually. So I'll maybe sort of walk you through it, um, and we could stop at various places. Yeah. But um, it's going to sound pretty sort of cut of the standard cloth at the start, and, and we gotcha. start, and, and that start is we try to prioritize the world's problems based on importance, relative neglectedness, and our ability to actually make a meaningful difference to them. And neglected in, in this framework is really sort of shorthand for the question: Could a philanthropist add value in this space? 
And one way to approximate the question is to look at the scale of the problem and see how much money is being spent on it by philanthropists relative to its scale. And indeed, we do this a lot of the time. So to give a sense of how this might work um, and, and to tie it back to one of the things I just mentioned, uh, I'll point to an example uh, in our recent report on lethal autonomous weaponized systems, which our research suggests poses a pretty meaningful threat to global stability and could be a causal pathway to a nuclear exchange or other form of great power conflict. And the strategic stability risk posed by autonomous weapons largely takes the form of government spending on these systems. So in, in 2021, for example, the U.S. Department of Defense requested $1.7 billion to work on autonomous weapons. And on the other side, philanthropic funding in the space is only about $2.5 million a year. So the ratio of philanthropic to military investment is around 1 to 680. And we can stack that up against cybersecurity, for instance, where the ratio is 1 to 62. So autonomous weapons are philanthropically neglected relative to cyber issues. And also, to take a step back, more generally, since we think $2.5 million is not very much to spend for an issue with potential catastrophic consequences, just not enough money. Yeah. But we, we don't always do sort of a neglectedness uh, exercise this way. And the question isn't always how much money is being spent, but sometimes is the money being spent wisely? Uh, and the work we do in climate, for example, um, uh, is, is indicative of this. And the reason that we work in climate is, despite the fact that there's $600 billion being spent on it annually, is we think there's a good reason to think that that money is either misspent or at the least the tendency in the climate space is for the next dollar to very likely be misspent. So an example, quickly. Um, carbon removal plays a really big role in many of the IP, IPCC emission scenarios that keep the world under that two-degree warming over pre-industrial levels, but it's historically been dramatically underfunded relative to other types of solutions that are more popular with the stakeholders driving philanthropic activity in the space. So within climate, neglectedness refers loosely to systematic, systematic bias, and our own work is largely focused on applying leverage in the policy landscape to try to fix these funding imbalances. So neglectedness sort of starts that conversation. Right. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then we look to you know, effective solutions uh, in these problem areas that take a data and evidence-led approach. Uh, and we think about solving them. Um, and so we sort of go through you know, the, the, the pretty standard uh, importance and uh, tractability phases of, of the standard ITN process. And then um, we look to organizations implementing cost-effective interventions that have room for additional funding and then make recommendations about which are most impactful. But we take different approaches based on different worldviews and, and like um, others in this space, we, we have a, a three-worldview approach. We care about current generations and that's largely the kinds of things that global health and development charities you might think about focus on. We care about long-termism, which is the welfare of people and other creatures living in the long-term future, and, and animal welfare. Um, and we do this sort of worldview diversification um, out of genuine moral uncertainty, and it's a strategy that we've adopted based on open philanthropies, uh, worldview diversification framework. Gotcha, gotcha. I, I, I'm curious, um, you know, how long does that evaluation process generally take? Is it kind of a, a quicker thing? Does it depend on the problem you're evaluating? Um, yeah, how, how long does it generally take you guys to kind of come to a conclusion that something is a good idea? Um, it really varies. Um, so we start by doing shallow investigations. If shallow investigations prove promising, we do medium depth investigations. And if they prove promising, then we do full cause area write-ups. I just came out of a meeting um, 
with one of our researchers um, walking me through a medium uh, investigation into an area we're considering. And uh, she spent the last three months working on it. And, um, and it seems pretty promising. It will likely do a deeper dive cause area investigation. That's going to take another couple of months yeah. before we even get to what are the funding opportunities in that space. And so, you know, I'd guess if I had to put a range on it somewhere between three and eight months, it takes to produce a piece of research that we're happy with, that we'll stand behind, that we're willing to put our high impact funding opportunity label on yeah. and then recommend to our members to fund. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's very robust it's, process. It's rigorous and, and pretty time intensive. And, you know, there are ways, you know, ways to actually increase efficiency and uh, decrease time spent on this stuff. Um, but, you know, it, it's, they're not super generalizable. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, I want to back up a little bit and, and go back to the beginning kind of a founder's pledge. Uh, yep. You know, David, uh, what was the moment where you realized like something like this needed to exist? Was it like, you know, you made like a, you know, a big pot of cash and you're like, okay, how do I make the world better with this liquidity I've got? And you start looking around at charities and you're like, wow, like the, the, the nonprofit industrial complex is, is not exactly the best way to spend the money. Uh, I need to spend something else up. It, what did that kind of process look like? Yeah. So I, it, I'd like to say that it was like way more strategic than it really was. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't. Um, I was, like you say, I made a pot of cash, wanted to give it away. I felt like I'd gotten really lucky in life a bunch of times. Um, even though I didn't really think that I was growing up, that I was like, my family grew up very working class and, you know, I would have thought we were poor, but, you know, as I got older and saw more of the world and really understood, really understood the place that I had in it, it turned out to be like actually really really very well off, like a white man born in California in the 1980s, like pretty good, sort of won the life lottery there. Um, so I, you know, I thought I, I've had some success in life. I've gotten really lucky a bunch of times. I should give money away. But the, you know, as you say, the charity industrial complex seemed broken and I didn't really understand what to do as a next step. Uh, but I, you know, I definitely didn't have an education to speak of. And I thought, um, you know, if I'm going to use my money well, I need to actually figure out how to think better first because I didn't have a good OS, right? Like I was street smart. I knew how to run a business. I knew, um, you know, how to hustle, but I didn't really understand how to think systematically, methodologically um, around big issues. And so I, you know, my, my thinking was I'm going to go get an education and actually learn how to think better. So I spent, you know, five years um, six years doing an undergrad and the start of a PhD. And, uh, and by the time I, you know, was into like the second year of my PhD program, I'd gotten itchy feet. I wasn't really sure. Like I'd sort of lost track of like why I did this to begin with. The PhD felt like the next logical step. Like it would really like take me to that next level, but I wasn't really sure what that next, like what the next level was going to be for me. And I sort of took a, took a step back i remember like i was up late one night i was um uh, i was in my apartment and i was just like i had really itchy feet i was just like i felt anxious i'm like what am i doing i'm not i'm not sure why i'm going to spend the next four years studying um international relations um and i don't know what i want to do next and i ended up um ended up going on the TED website as one does late at night to like be inspired by um, really interesting people who um, 
know, speak well about their journey. And um, I saw a TED Talk by um, uh, by uh, Dan Pallotta, which was basically just the, the most brutal charity takedown I've ever seen. <laughs> and he just like eviscerated the charitable, charity industrial complex through this lens of like, they just don't care about, like donors don't care about efficiency. They just, they want, they want to feel good. And, and he walked through the story about just how ineffective um, and how hamstrung he was by, um, by donors and um, sort of outside interests. And it was really depressing actually and didn't make didn't make me feel any better. And I and then the next suggested TED talk was by Jennifer Polka, uh, who had started something called Code for America, and it was like the other side of that coin. It was this message of hope and this message of like, you know, we have this amazing opportunity to leverage technology and technologists to make the world better. And um, and she had this, and it was just like the most inspiring thing I'd, I'd seen. And I, and I sort of decided after watching her TED talk, like I started thinking about like, why did, what, what journey have I been going on? Like, why did I go, why did I decide to go to college and, and do PhD? And it was like, I wanted to think better about charity. And like, she's just, she just told me that there's a way to do this. And it's the intersection of technology, charity, and government. And um, I told my supervisor the next day that I'm not planning on continuing. I, and like, I basically dropped out. Um, and I decided at that point to work at this intersection and found, found a foundation in, in the UK, in London. I was at Cambridge at the time um, that was basically recruiting me. They like wrote a job spec for me to run this really interesting project, seemingly interesting project, that was the intersection of um, uh, social entrepreneurs using technology to scale impact. And I just loved it. It was just like, oh, cool. I'm going to go try to emulate Jen Polka and, 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 and help um, entrepreneurs build scalable, technology-empowered commercial solutions to impact-driven problems. Um, and my job was to help people become more commercially viable. And, um, and it just didn't work. Like, it just it didn't work. I spent a year on it, gave away a million pounds of equity-free cash to 20 businesses. And... Um, and it was a failure, basically. And it was like a useful failure because I learned a lot. And uh, and the big, the moment that sort of Founders Pledge crystallized as a concept was, I'm, I'm focusing on the wrong user group and I'm focusing on the wrong thing. I'm helping these social entrepreneurs try to be more commercially viable. Um, and maybe I should just focus on great commercial entrepreneurs and help them to be more socially impactful. And maybe I should just solve the problem that I faced when I sold my business what like started this whole journey that I went on, which is like, how do you actually give money away better? And by this point, you know, GiveWell was well-established. Um, effective altruism was this burgeoning community. I hadn't really become involved in it yet. Um, uh, and yeah, and, I, and, and, and at the same time, we were seeing the giving pledge and this idea that like billionaires sh- would, should, in, uh, you know, must give back of their success in some meaningful capacity. Um, and it just felt like, felt like the right time to create positive social pressure on people who were going to be billionaires to get them to commit to give before they actually made their money while they still were paper rich and seemingly generous, like, but at least had the potential for generosity and extreme earning potential. And so, yeah, Founders Pledge developed really quickly, 
you know, like that aha moment was April 2014. And by March 2015, it was live in the world. That's great. That's great. I, I, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned something interesting there and, and that's, uh, you know, this idea of like, you know, social entrepreneurship or something like that. And, and then there's like, uh, you, you know, making a lot of money and, and then doing good with it. So there's like, you know, there's, there's companies that can do good directly, like in the business context. Mm-hmm. And then there, there's companies that, you know, you make a lot of money and, and you could do both, right? You can make a lot of money doing good and then give it away in, in a robust way. And then you get this kind of double whammy. But it does seem to be yeah. like there's there's a bit of a dichotomy between, you know, something that's, you know, in some sense helping with climate change, like a Tesla, and then something that's just like a high frequency trading, you know, quant fund, which is more just like money making in some sense. You know, maybe there's some or like ad tech, right? Ad so like tech, the, you know, like exactly. The, the notorious tech <laughs> yes. boogeyman, right? Like perhaps, perhaps ad, ad tech, tech money. That's great. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, how do you think about, uh, you know, coaching founders through this if they're, you know, building one of these companies in between and how they can kind of maximize the most good they can do? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, There aren't very many of these inherently world positive companies that also have huge, you know, earning potential. I mean, I think you've uh, Tesla is a really great example. Um, lots, lots of ed tech um, sort of fits this bill. Um, climate tech fits this bill. Um, alternative protein and food tech fits this bill. In some cases, pharma fits this bill. But the rest of the sort of consumerist ecosystem of technology companies tends not to. And um, and my view has been, you know, and I've encouraged founders to just focus on having positive social like uh, financial outcomes without necessarily harming the world rather than um, doing you know trying to focus on doing good in it I found that s- people who self-identify as social entrepreneurs tend to be but not always are less good at you know the commercial um, outcomes than those who just focus on the commercial outcomes and if they are social by dint of the area that they're working on all the better for it. But the, the self-identified social entrepreneurs, I you know, tend, I think, to have slightly less good um, outcomes. So I, I, you know, my my advice to people when I get asked it is, you know, focus on building a good business that doesn't harm the world actively, that makes a lot of money, and then and then once you've made that money, give the vast majority of it away to the very best stuff. And 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 at that point, when you have you know the the fu capital, basically. You can you can go about doing things that sit at that intersection, and you know if we use Elon as a use case, and I think he's a a, a good one here. Um, if you take the human Elon out of the equation and you focus on Musk, the entrepreneur, like why is he doing what he's doing? His arc is really interesting, and I think potentially something we can recreate, and uh, certainly something we're attempting to do, which is you, know, you have this guy started a business with a bunch of other white men you know, that became PayPal, that had a really good outcome. And that outcome gave him a few money, basically. And uh, when he was very young in his, you know, in his career, and he had 50 to 70 years, I almost said 100 years, maybe he will, but 50 to 70 years of work life left. And he sort of stepped back and he said, okay, so what do I do now? Like, what? how do I spend my resources? How do I spend my time? And he ended up sort of, coming to the conclusion that I should spend my time on things that are potentially harmful and detrimental to humanity's existence, our fragile existence. And he identified sort of three areas, right? Petrochemicals, the fact that we're 
living on one one planet, and that one planet is susceptible to shocks, um, and uh, AI, and built three companies around each of those three areas, um, truly bucking status quo, and and building commercial juggernauts that are also social businesses, in my view. Um, and we can debate whether they're social businesses or w- people will debate and yes. may think differently. But in, in my view, like absent Tesla, we don't have an electric car revolution. Battery tech isn't nearly where it's at. None of none of the changes that we're seeing in energy infrastructure really exist. Absent SpaceX, you still have a duopoly um, yep. with a couple of bloated commercial players that haven't really innovated in a long time. Um, and uh, and we aren't aiming for the stars again. And OpenAI has you know been an interesting journey. Um, and Neuralink is the next version of that for Elon, right? Like all, all three companies, yeah, all very interesting, all aimed at making money, all aimed at doing good. I want to see more of that, definitely. But that arc is like make money and then go about right, using right. that money to like buck industries that are otherwise. Um, unhappy to allow people to change the status quo definitely that, that's that's super interesting it's super interesting um it seems like uh you and elon you know you're similar in that you know you got liquidity early and that gave you like slack to be able to go and like solve like the problems you kind of like wanted to solve and maybe you solved the problems you want to solve in, in the beginning as well. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know the story. Uh, but um, do you think there's something important about that aspect of like, you know, getting a, a big win, like kind of early that gives you some amount of like slack to just like look at the entire picture and say, okay, like, yes. what is important for me to solve? Absolutely. Gotcha. I mean, it's why, it's why founders pledge is doing what founders pledge is doing. Right. So there's, um, and I, I think that the people who've gone through the gauntlet of, starting a business and having liquidity in that business like that pressure cooker creates a different type of human than someone who inherits wealth and that's not to say that the person who inherits wealth isn't a good person right many of them are i'm sure yeah um but that gauntlet of like building something from scratch magic magic it into existence um funding it sustainably or with venture capital, growing it to a scale, dealing with all of the human problems that res- like that one deals with in running a business, as well as like the commercial sides of it, the financial sides of it, the product sides of it. It just it creates different types of people. They're they're special. Right. And and that, that that doesn't mean they're like special with, you know, in a capital S or exceptional in, in some in some way that isn't um recreatable but they're like different and that type of person i think um just is more able to sort of think outside and think think bigger and think outside the box um and uh and coupled with extreme wealth it's a different sort of order of magnitude of ambition and um and and willingness to try stuff um and risk taking and I think that that generally is a good thing. So like at Founders Pledge, we focus on people who are going to potentially be incredibly wealthy and we start working with them five to seven years ahead of that wealth actually materializing. So by the time they actually have liquidity, they're well positioned to think more strategically about how to deploy that capital to achieve maximum social impact. And that may not always be with charity. 
it 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 often in, well, it always encompasses charity in some degree with Founders Pledge by the nature of what our commitment is. But you know, our eighteen hundred members have pledged more than eight billion dollars, and their collective net wealth is in the you know many trillions. Um, yeah, like the and what that means is this group of people has the ability to potentially like remake the world in a better way. Definitely or help to remake it in a better way. And you know, for us, it's about coordination to solve those really tough problems and getting the right people um, connected in the right times, right? Um, to focus on the right stuff. I'm curious, David. When um, you know an entrepreneur gets liquidity, a founder gets liquidity, and they come to you, um, and you don't have to like tell me how the sausage is made, uh, so sure. we can cut cut this if you don't want to talk about it. But like, do you just like do you give them a questionnaire? You're like, okay, like you know. And well, you've done really well. Uh, what, what cause areas do you like? What, what do you want to look at? Or, or do you say like, hey, like we've kind of stacked ranked these um, kind of interventions, and we think like these are this is the most tractable kind of underfunded thing. This is kind of the highest leverage thing you could do at this time. Um, what, what does that kind of process look like? Or is it just kind of dynamic? It's pretty dynamic, and depending upon the person and um, you know, and where they're at, how much you know the kind of outcome they're looking at. And, you know, we've created some archetypes and some, you know, user um, user types that we know how to service well. Um, we'll, we'll work with them in different ways. Um, but it typically, re- you know, starts with a, a conversation to understand, you know, what their ambitions are, what their timelines look like. Um, and, and then we get into some of the specifics. And some people come to us, you know, fully formed with ideas. And, um, and they really just sort of want validation about like what within their ideas do we think makes the most sense. Um, and we can give that, uh, but that's not really our, you know, our, you know, unique value proposition. Um, most of the people we tend to work with, we start by doing a values discovery session where we try to understand actually what are their sort of underlying intrinsic values that like allow them to make decisions in their day-to-day lives that they feel comfortable with and how do those values map to philanthropic uh, opportunities. And, um, and and so we sort of try to translate those intrinsic values into areas of focus. And then within those areas of focus, we stack rank um, and encourage people to do the most effective stuff. Um, You know, and at the end of the day, the reason we work with entrepreneurs is because entrepreneurs tend to follow data and tend tend to be more rational than your average person, though not always. And um, and we present data that's compelling, and we present data that you know, tells a story about like there are things that are way way but way better than other things, and um, and you should fund them. Absolutely. Uh, and and when presented with information and the comparators between you know what they want to do and the outcomes that we expect from that and what we suggest they do and the outcomes that we expect from that, it's a pretty straightforward decision. That's good. And, and you've done this robust research, like you described, process to kind That's of right. vet everything. So like, you know, you can give really good numbers there. Yeah, I mean, we, we also partner with lots of other evaluators in the space and give well open philanthropy, um, farmed animal funders, Happier Lives Institute, and, and lots of others um, who are just doing exceptional work. And we're not trying to recreate the wheel. Right. Uh, we're just trying to make sure all of the different wheels and cogs and gears fit together and make the watch tick at the right 
the right rate. That's good. Um, another question here. If you look at the EA movement as a whole, what do you think it gets mm-hmm. right? And, and what do you think it gets kind of less right? And I, I want to like, pr- like uh, put an asterisk on this question that I, I think the EA movement is like probably the most self-reflective group of people I've been ever associated with. So, you know, at, at some level, they do a really good job at this already. But uh, what do you see that, that EA could do better? Um, yeah. I think that sometimes EA suffers suffers from like a a communications deficit. Like it's you're right, one of the more self reflective communities of people I've ever encountered. Um, some of the smartest people I've ever encountered. Uh, but sometimes, you know, because it's a movement um, and it's a, a set of broad ideas, um, it's not a monolith, and um, and so. It's hard to communicate well as a movement that is so diverse in its thinking and so and 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 so self-reflective. It's it's there's there's sometimes it's just like a communication deficit, I think. Um what else do I think? Is that toward the public? So, yeah. Like like like, I mean, like it, to the broader it, public? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like EA is like generally like the way EAs think is generally pretty much the way we should be thinking about most of these things. Um, And if we want more people to, you know, join that movement, it needs to be palatable to them. And, and often it's not, Um, or people develop knee jerk reactions to um, some of the, some of the, the, the language that's used to talk about things feel yeah. that it's heartless and, and essentially develop very knee jerk views that are hard to dispel and propagate. Um, so I think, you know, most people in any case, when asked to buy into the basic premises of EA um, do, and yes, they believe a life in Malawi is as worth as much as a life in Minneapolis or wherever it is. Yes. That, they believe that we should use data and evidence and figuring out how to do good, but they sometimes balk at the conclusions that these premises entail, maybe. Um, and I think that for many people who haven't really sort of rigorously got into studying this, um, you know, giving is very emotional. And, um, and I just, I'm not sure that like EA is good at taking that emotional response and turning it into something uh, rational and sort of, and, and impactful. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure how to sort of put that, but there's like the emotional givers just seem not to resonate with EA and I wish they, I wish they could. And maybe, and, and maybe that's, you know, a lack of storytelling. I'm not sure. Right. So maybe we can tell like more compelling stories about how EA is helping instead of because there's trade off when you quantify things, it, you know, it's perhaps less compelling. But then you yeah. want to also be able to, you know, like sell this to people. You want to communicate this to people and you need to make it palatable to, to everyone across the political spectrum. And yeah, I, th- I think I think that that's right. Um, yeah, I don't think EA gets a huge amount wrong. I mean, there there is some there's something to be said about the. It is a movement generally of white men, um, it, although it's getting better. Uh, you know, we're we're seeing more more diversity in it. Um, the the 
the pushback that I've gotten or uh, the critiques that I've heard have tended to be around um, most of the people, especially in, the, in this global health and development space and current generation focus, don't have much field experience um, and don't have any real context for what they recommend. So they're like, you know, academics, straight out of university, um, who can sort of run cost-effectiveness analyses and, um, and um, you know, do, you know, have sort of statistics, at, you know, at their disposal and, um, and, and do regression analyses and, and, all, and, and do all the sort of the academic stuff, but don't really understand what it's like on the ground running an organization. And as a result, we'll never get it right until they do. Subligeability problems. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard that a lot. Um, and I think, you know, there's some truth in it. There really is. And until you run an organization, it's really hard to understand the complexity of running an organization um, and, uh, and sort of the unexpected, the unexpectedness that was sort of the, what am I trying to say? And how, things happen that are just so outside the realm of what you expect that you have to deal with. Um, and this is just sort of part and parcel of every organization, even the really well-run ones. Um, That's what yeah. happens. I think, I think maybe, you know, EA would do well to have some more operational uh, experience in its core. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think it's a good, that, that's a really good critique. Um, David, I got another question here. You know, sure. you've got a background in real estate, finance, and housing. You know, housing affordability, it's a big problem lately. I'm a big Georgist. I won a grant from Scott Alexander back in January with my friend to help implement, you know, land value tax. Um, I'm also interested in the Yimby movement. You know, how do you think about fixing the housing crisis? What are interventions are you particularly interested in? And have you guys looked much at housing as a space? We have. I am not super well versed on our housing affordability report at the moment, unfortunately, though. So we have written housing affordability report. It is on our website. Um, and I've just pulled up the summary now. Um, and it focus on, uh, it's a focus on England. Um, and yeah, and it's from 2020. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really, um, yeah, well, fortunately, well versed enough to speak about it, but we have suggested as one of our recommended funding opportunities, London YIMBY, um, which is trying to improve housing policy in, in England. Um, and it's using a, uh, a seemingly novel approach that focuses on overcoming political economy challenges. Um, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, David, are you around for a, down for a round of overrated and underrated? Sure. Let's do it. So I'll throw out a term. You'll just tell me whether it's overrated or underrated. Okay. Um, so the first one, I think you already answered this, but I'll throw it out there anyway. AI X risk. Is it overrated or underrated? Let's say by the general public. Underrated. Underrated. That's good. Vastly and why? Underrated. Why do you think it is? Just not exposure? Can't quite grok what's going on? People, when they hear about AI risk, think Terminator and um, and don't really, and then write it off as science fiction. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, and also and and just don't understand. I think the speed uh, and uh, the speed of development and just like what the, the the risk really entails. 
Uh, do, do you put and your it, and, it, and it feels really far off it to lots of people. It does. It it, it still feels uh, quite far off to me. But the the medica- I always mi- mispronounce it. The prediction markets meticulous. Me- yeah. meticulous. And they um they have it very uh it just you know moved up a lot with Dolly and uh, it's what is it fifteen years away? Do you, I believe right now? It's really close. It might even be less than that. It might be less than that. Uh, do you think that that's? Uh, do you think that's all the money? You think that's aggressive? Do you think that's? I it'll take longer. Literally, no I literally don't know. Don't I'm, know. Uh, I'm not an expert in this. Um, most of the people who I talk to who are experts think that it's probably pretty close to right. Gotcha. Um, I was uh, at a talk the other day, um, and I can't attribute who said it, but organization is working on yeah is is working on a sub 10-year timeline for general ai and it's one of the big ones wow um and and the guy talking about it very casually just guy or girl uh very casually mentioned that um yeah we expect in less than 10 years we'll have a weak general ai wow well that is that's and i was like oh that's pretty horrifying and i went (laughs) cried in the corner and (laughs) Exactly. Had a drink. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But that's, that's what we can do. Um, investing to give, overrated or underrated? Underrated. Underrated. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, uh, we just uh, published a report and set up a new fund, the Patient Philanthropy Fund, that is investing to give on a, on a couple hundred year timeline. Um, the brilliant Shear, who I never pronounced his last name right, Hugh Makers, um, who's just uh, who's just left Founders Pledge to uh, join, uh, giving what we can as their head of research, spearheaded this uh, wonderful initiative to get people to uh, invest, invest to give over the long term, focusing on X risks. Um, uh, so we launched that at the end of last year, I believe, if memory serves me. We brought in nearly two million dollars for it so far, and um, yeah, have a great. Uh, great momentum as we look to raise more but it's certainly underrated is that just because you can get excess you know you get these returns that compile over time and there's just such a large with a long enough time horizon like markets point in one direction and if you have the capacity to draw down capital rapidly as and when you have sort of very hingy moments yeah um it's it's hard to see why you wouldn't invest to give it with at least some of your philanthropy Got it. Got it. Do, do you think or, there are any or just personal capital? Right. right. I mean, do you think there are challenges with like uh, maintaining, you know, large pools of capital like over time and have them be directed to the the purpose they were intended to? I'm sure it goes, it goes into the report, report, but it is in the report. We've looked into it pretty extensively. Um, this tends not to be a problem with some of with with large pots of money because of how they were set up and the gotcha. um, sort of founding. Uh, constitutional documents. They're trusts and foundations that are hundreds and hundreds of years old that oh, really? you know cool. are still focused on the very specific thing. Um, in some cases, to their detriment, because that specific thing no longer exists <laughs> as an issue, and and they have uh, you know so much money that they can't actually do anything with because of how the organization was set up. But I think we've drafted um, our founding documents for the Patient Philanthropy Fund, which is an independent. Um, independent entity uh, licensed by the UK Charity Commission to be more flexible. Very cool. Very cool. Um, One last one. Direct cash transfers. Overrated or underrated? I think it's 
rated appropriately. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to create a third category. I don't That's think good. it's either. I mean, if you can't do better than direct cash transfers, do direct cash transfers. Um, still, too many people intermediate with organizations that are unnecessary. Right. So, yeah. Um, but and, but 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 again, lots of lots of development uh, uh, agencies uh, focus on direct cash transfers direct cash transfers already. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't call it either. I mean, I'd rather people give to give directly than Oxfam, for example. That's good. That's good. Um, well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, My pleasure. Where can people find you? Where can people find Founders Pledge? Where should we send them? Uh, our website, foundersplege.com. Um, all of our research is public. All of our giving recommendations are on our website. Um, uh, if you're based in the U.S. and you want to give to any of our top charities, you can do so with every.org. Just search for Founders Pledge. We have a profile there and a bunch of different um, pooled funds. And if you're in the U.K., you can go to EA Funds, and we have our climate fund there as well as a couple of others. And our, and our website. So if you have questions, if you're an entrepreneur, please do feel free to send us an email uh, or reach out via our web form. Awesome. Thanks, David. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.